Lord, uh, we were not there when you rose up from the grave, but we certainly believe it. We certainly rejoice in it. We certainly have the promise of resurrection and life because the resurrection is true. We thank you, God, for giving us hope in Christ, the risen Savior, and we pray as we come back to that subject today in the Gospel of Mark that our hearts would be uplifted as we look once again at the marvels and wonder and miracle of Christ and him crucified and him raised from the dead. I pray, Lord, that all who hear would be once again caused to look up to him in faith and in hope, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let us turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Last week was Resurrection Sunday, so we decided to go to the other Gospels, right? Matthew, Luke, and John, and touched on the last chapters of those wonderful accounts, highlighted a few things of the glorious event of Jesus rising from the dead. And we understand that if Jesus died for our sins and was buried and remained dead, then the gospel would not be true. Our faith and our preaching would be worthless lies. Our sins would not be forgiven. And we Christians of all people are to be what? Most pitied, right? 1 Corinthians 15. And we had uh, Pastor Bill read that scripture for us, the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19. But thank God for verse 20, right? But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And so today we are going to conclude Mark's gospel account with the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of Man. He is, as we've seen, the ruler who serves, and he's the servant who rules, and he rules. He has conquered even sin and death, and he did it by laying down his own life as a ransom for many. Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection is the most concise of the gospel writers as is consistent with his style that we've seen over the last two plus years. Can you believe it's been two years and a couple months since we started the Gospel of Mark? Imagine if I did Matthew. (laughs) But um, praise the Lord, we are coming at the end here, and it's a glorious, wonderful end. And so we're going to mainly focus on Mark's account, our passage today, in Mark 15, starting in verse 42, and it's going to go to chapter 16 to verse 8. And this is following all that was said last Sunday. So let me read our passage for us today. And if you are able to stand with me as we honor God's word, that would be wonderful. Mark 15, starting in verse 42, and I'm going to read till 16, verse 8. And this is the word of God. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. 
and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. They were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they, had, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. Our sermon title today is simply, He Has Risen. And I'd like us to see from this last part of Mark's gospel two main points. And um, they're wonderful points, but they're pretty, they're pretty straightforward. Okay? The amazing grace of God. And we're going to see that in a few trophies of God's grace. And secondly, in chapter 16, the almighty power of God. And we see that in trembling at Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so chapter 15 ends with the burial of Jesus. And chapter 16, which is the rightful ending, verses 1 through 8 of Mark's gospel. And we'll get to that hopefully at the end or maybe next week. Um, explanation. But the almighty power of God seen in the trembling over Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so first... Verses 42 to 47, the amazing grace of God is seen in these trophies of his grace. And it starts in verse 42, when evening had already come. This was Friday evening, right? And when it says evening there, understand it's sometime between 3 and 6 p.m. Because Jesus breathed his last breath after those three dark, tormented hours where the Father's forsaken him. Darkness in the land. Three hours at 3 p.m., Jesus dies. And Mark says it was the preparation day now, the day before the Sabbath, which is Saturday, which starts at 6 p.m. on Friday in Jewish time. So all the things for the Sabbath, which were to be prepared, needed to be done before 6 p.m., and no work was to be done after that time. And so this is significant because in Jewish law, and even according to the scriptures, Deuteronomy 21.23 says that 
Anyone who's hanged on a tree must be taken down and buried that same day, before sundown. But more significantly, as this is happening to Jesus, it's going to fulfill the scripture, it's going to fulfill his own words, that he would be raised on the, what? The third day, that's right. So he would need to be buried before Friday ends at 6 p.m. Okay, so if, he's, if he is buried before that time, it means there's a portion of Friday, there's all of Saturday, and a portion of Sunday that he's dead and buried, and he rises again on the third day. Okay? So when it says the third day there, it doesn't mean I had this question when I was a kid. Like, you know, wait, Friday, it's like it's barely, it's still in the nighttime, and that's not three days. Well, it's the third day. A portion of this, all of the second, portion of the last. All right? So anyway, here comes Joseph of Arimathea, which is a, a city of the Jews. He's a prominent member of the council. In other words, he's a, he's a powerful and authoritative member of the Sanhedrin, which is, if you will, the religious supreme court of Israel. This very group of religious leaders whose scheming and plotting led to the crucifixion of Christ. He's part of that Jewish religious rulership, but he's not like them. He's described as one who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He believed in the Old Testament scriptures about the kingdom to come. He believed what Jesus said and taught and preached about the kingdom of God and about the gospel of God. Incredibly, the, the parallel passage, passages indicate that he was a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, as unlikely as that would have been for these men, part of this group, this council, who hated Jesus to death. Matthew 27, verse 57. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Luke also says this, Luke 23, 50. And a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, parentheses, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. So Joseph was a, a rich, wealthy man. He was a true disciple of Christ, a good, righteous man. He didn't agree with the council's plans to falsely accuse and murder Jesus. He was one of the Sanhedrin, but not one with them. John 19, verse 38, listen to this. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, right? Get back to that in a second. The very next verse in John 19, verse 39, he mentions also, and he's the only one who mentions Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, and he brings the myrrh and olives and everything. So um, Nicodemus, as we know, it says there, who had first come to him by night, right, in John chapter 3, in secret, doesn't want to be found out, doesn't want to see other, other guys in the Sanhedrin see him talking and asking Jesus about things. Um, John chapter 7, he's, he's mentioned there as well, a Pharisee, a religious ruler of the Jews. So these men, Joseph, Nicodemus, 
trophies of God's great grace. We'll get to that more in the end, but look at verse 43. Speaking of Joseph, he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate. So why would this wealthy, respected, esteemed man of authority and power need to gather up courage before going in to see Pilate? Well, John chapter 12, verse 42 says something very helpful and interesting. John 12, 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. John 12, verse 42. So that gives us some insight on why um, Joseph would need to gather up courage and, and, and boldness uh, to go into to ask Pilate for the body of Christ. He doesn't want to be associated with him. So Joseph of Arimathea, he was against this great injustice that happened. He did not agree with it. He was not part of those evil schemes. He was against the vast majority of his peers. And he was one of the few good, righteous, true disciples of Jesus. It said many of the rulers, right, believed in him. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they were true disciples. Okay, Many of them, it says in the next verse there, that they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so, even Joseph, though, out of fear for his position, his well-being, his livelihood, his standing, he had to gather up courage before going in to speak to Pilate in order to obtain Jesus' body. And he, he didn't necessarily want to be found out here either, out of the closet and excommunicated. But all that said, guess what? He did it. He did it. He went and did it. He took action on his beliefs, his conviction, his desire to honor Jesus, the Messiah. He wanted to take care of his dead body. He wanted to give him an honorable, proper burial. Verse 44 says, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time because a lot of times the the criminals, the the victims of crucifixion would not would take a longer time to die. But it's plain from the text that Jesus had really died. Okay, the account here in Mark and the other Gospels is so clear, just so open, describing the scene. Pilate himself, he was wondering if he died yet when Joseph comes to him. So what does he do? He calls over the centurion. And most likely, this is the one who had just witnessed the way that Jesus died. He breathed his last breath. Most likely the one who confessed that Jesus was innocent. He was righteous. Truly, this is the Son of God. And so Pilate asks this one if Jesus was already dead. Of course, the centurion, who have seen many of these executions, confirms that Jesus is already dead. And so Pilate says to Joseph, you can have the dead body. This could not be more clear. So verse 46, what does Joseph do? He bought a linen cloth, apparently purchased already for for this specific purpose, and he took him down. The other accounts, the Gospels, also say that Joseph is the one who took Jesus down from the cross, and I find that to be an incredible, intimate detail. Can you imagine this wealthy, rich, aristocratic, religious leader 
removing Jesus from the cross and taking his marred and scarred and torn and bloody and beaten body up close to his own and taking him off of that cross. Such a contrast to what usually happened to dead bodies of crucifixion. The usual Roman practice was to throw them into a a common grave left open for animals and scavenger birds to feast on or into a burning garbage dump. But Joseph personally takes him down and it says he wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. It appears that Joseph did all this by himself as well. But John also tells us that Nicodemus comes at some point aiding in the anointing of the body. John 19, verse 39 to 41. I'll just read a portion. Um, But it says, Nicodemus also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so... um, In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So John gives us a little bit more information there. And it's a brand new tomb purchased by Joseph, which no one had been put in yet. Matthew says also that it was his own new tomb. In other words, Joseph had prepared it for himself. And we should understand that those tombs back then were not like the the tombs um, that we are, are accustomed to today. Uh, D.A. Carson shares some details about ancient tombs. He writes, quote, tombs were of various kinds. Many were sealed with some sort of boulder wedged into place to discourage wild animals and grave robbers. But an expensive tomb, like, like this one, consisted of an antechamber hewn out of the rock face with a low passage leading into the burial chamber that was sealed with a cut disc-shaped stone that rolled in a slot cut into the rock. Now the slot was on an incline, making the grave easy to seal but difficult to open. Several men might be needed to roll the stone back up the incline, end quote. So that might give us a little bit of um, information or clue about how it said Joseph uh, had, had rolled out um, the stone, but easy to, to put in, but not easy to, to roll out, okay? So it says he, Joseph, and maybe with help from Nicodemus, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So just a few points to consider before we get to the other trophies, these dear ladies coming up next. But the truth and reality that Jesus was dead. He was crucified and died. It was confirmed by those who put him to death on the cross, experts even in this gruesome practice of crucifixion, Gentiles, people who didn't believe in him, Roman heathens, they verified it. But also, the fact that preparations were being made for his burial by Joseph and Nicodemus, these were Jews who were afraid to be associated with Jesus, but believed in him, they were true disciples, they were faithfully carrying out this risky action, taking his body and giving him a proper burial. And um, So that's one point to consider, just the, the truth and reality of Jesus' death. There's all sorts of theories, and he wasn't really dead, swoon theory, he was taken, all these things, false. 
Okay? And um, the other thing I want us to get is uh, this is how God buried his own son, right? This is just like he planned it. Isaiah 53, verse 9, down to that detail. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. 700-some years before Isaiah writing this, and it comes true right at this moment. And so these trophies of grace, Joseph and Nicodemus, these most unlikely converts, I'll call them, because we've seen the vitriol, the violence, the hatred, the malice, the wickedness of these people, these men, these Jewish leaders who are supposed to be spiritually attuned with God, who so hated the Savior, the Messiah, that they plotted and lied and accused falsely and, and convinced everyone to put him on a cross. And yet, yet, Joseph and Nicodemus, by God's grace, by God's power, believe Okay, so I, I want to encourage you, don't give up on people. Okay, don't give up on the unbelievers who are in your family or in your friend group or in your neighborhood. Don't ever give up on them. Okay, until they stop breathing, it's not, it's not too late. Salvation is only by God's grace and power. He is the God of the impossible, and we're called to witness for him. And so when I think of uh, this last scene here, as Jesus dies, the Roman Gentile centurion, unlikely, unlikely that this man would be saved, but he believes. Who comes, who comes to, to take his body but this, this religious Sanhedrin council member? Okay? Unlikely, and yet this is the way God shows his grace. So, um, wow. What courage, what faith in action, um, as shown by these men. But let's look at a few more trophies of God's grace here at Jesus' burial. In verse 47, Mark includes this. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. And that maybe reminds us of verse 40. Okay, who was also there? Verse 40 in that same chapter 15 There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and Salome. So these women and others, um, according to Luke 24, they were present at Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. Eyewitnesses to all the crucial events of the gospel, of which... Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance, right? What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the repeated mention of names here by Mark is both unusual and noteworthy. Hey, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, Salome, um, from verse 40, and she's going to show up in, in verse 16, uh, chapter 16. But we've, we've uh, mentioned them uh, a couple Sundays ago as we were finishing up the previous passage, but Mary Magdalene, once again, most information we have from her is from, uh, about her is from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and she's possessed by seven demons. She's severely just exercised uh, with not just one demon, that's bad enough, 
but seven demons, and Jesus heals her by his grace and power once again. She becomes a follower of, follower of Christ who serves him, and she's mentioned in uh, the gospel accounts. Mary, the mother of Joseph. In verse 40, she's called the Mary, the Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. In John 19, verse 25, she's called Mary, the wife of Clopas. And so I just want to point out that James the Less is one of the 12, right? He's one of the original 12 disciples, apostles. And so she is a a prominent um, figure here. And Salome is, just so you know, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so what is the point here that we just want to make as we look at this one verse? Well, these were faithful women who believed in Jesus. They followed him around, which, that just sounds normal now, but listen, back in Jesus' time, that was not the custom for ladies to be allowed to follow rabbis around. And Jesus, in his view, and his high view perspective of women, allowed them to come follow him around. They served him, they ministered to him, they financially contributed to support him, they were all devoted to him all the way to the end, right? They watched him be crucified. They witnessed his death. And they were looking on to see him buried. So these women, as we just consider this point before we go to the next one, trophies of God's grace, folks. Um, God and Jesus' view of women, he highly values them. He valued them. He shows it throughout the Gospels in their roles, in their ministries, in their mention, in their mention by name specifically. Hey, though none of these faithful women were called to be apostles, hey, all 12 of the disciples were men. They were not called to be preachers or pastors or elders. But it doesn't mean that women are inferior to men or lower in God's sight or in Jesus' sight. No way. It means that they were given a different role. A one of service, one of support, rather than leadership. But they are equally important in the eyes of God. And every one of us, men and women, are called to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And so Galatians 5.28, I'll remind you, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? Don't get confused, folks. It doesn't mean that there aren't differences or distinctions between Jews and Greeks or slaves and freemen or male and female. There are differences and distinctions. But we're all one in Christ. We are incredibly privileged and incredibly graced by God. All of us, in fact, are trophies of God's grace. And so salvation is open to all. This is amazing. So we've seen God's amazing grace in these trophies of his. Let's look next at the almighty power of God. The almighty power of God. And we see it in the trembling at Jesus' resurrection, verses 1 through 8. And I've kind of broken this up into three little sections here. And the first one is the surprise of the empty tomb. The surprise of the empty tomb is verses 1 through 4. 
It says there in verse 1, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Well, the Sabbath officially over at sundown on Saturday. So the three women, hey again, specifically named here by Mark, they were able to buy spices before going to Jesus' tomb the next morning. And so they did that. And they go for the purpose of anointing him. Okay? And this was an act of love, an act of worship. And practically speaking, it was, it was to offset the stench of a, of a body that's been decaying for, for three days. So um, the Jews did not embalm their dead, unlike the Egyptians, but they anointed them. And so the fact that these women were going to anoint Jesus' body three days after his burial, what does that clearly indicate to us once again? That Jesus died. <laughs> he was dead. They were not expecting him to be alive. Okay? And it says very early on the first day of the week, verse 2, okay, before dawn, even before sunrise, when they were going to the tomb, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, this was the very beginning of Christian believers setting apart Sunday to meet and remember the glorious resurrection of the Lord. And I'll just remind you once again, Acts 20, verse 7, okay, by way of description. Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Okay, this is that famous scene where... Eutychus is listening on the windowsill and Paul keeps going on and on to midnight and he falls down, right? He falls asleep first and then he falls off three stories down to his death. And then Paul resurrects good old Eutychus. And so um, that's Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Paul writing again, he says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So this is Paul's instructions to the Corinthians to take up their collection as they gather, as they meet, so that when he comes, they don't have to scramble around. But they're doing it every week and building up so that he can contribute to the needs of the saints. And then uh, John mentions in Revelation 1.10 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Okay, this would be the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first, like I love to say, the best day of the week. Okay, So... Um, Moving on, chapter 16, verse 3. On this Lord's Day, on Sunday, the first day of the week, these ladies are going up to the tomb. They're saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They're concerned about the issue of getting to Jesus' body in the tomb. Once again, I just keep saying this, but it speaks to the reality of his death and the difficulty of the task. It would have taken the strength of several men to move what Mark says is that extremely large stone that closed the entrance of Jesus' tomb. And so hopefully it's, it's helpful just to, to remember that maybe to, to put it in was not as difficult, but to move it was certainly going to be, um, they were not going to be able to do it, these women. But as they get closer to it, they look up to see that somehow this huge thing was already rolled away. And so um, I mentioned some of the other parallel passages last Sunday. 
So there is a chronology of events here and who's seeing what exactly, but I'm just going to stick to the text right now. And um, there's helpful kind of uh, just books that have put together these things. But um, Mary Magdalene is the one who actually went up before the other women first and saw, and she goes and tells Peter. But anyway, what happens here with the women who are there coming behind Mary Magdalene, they are surprised, um, very surprised to say the least, uh, to see that this stone was already rolled away. I mean, they were just talking about it. Right? Who's going to help us? Uh, who, who would, who could, as they see it, who could have moved that humongous thing? And it was about to get answered in a most extraordinary way. But um, Luke 24, Luke 24, verses 2 and 3, just want to point out something. He writes, And they, these women, found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Okay? So they go into this hewn out cave, which is the, the tomb, the burial plot, burial site of, of Jesus. And it says in Luke 24, while they were perplexed about this, so they were surprised, they were confused about the tomb being empty, about Jesus not being there, okay? the, the, Jesus' dead body not being there. And so what happens next? After this surprise over the empty tomb, Luke goes on by saying, Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And there's, there's this shock at the angels next. And this is my next point here in this, this part of the passage. Shock at the angels, verses 5 through 7. The way Mark writes it, he says in verse 5 of Mark 16, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Okay, so they enter into this tomb. They see a, a young man sitting at the right. Interesting to include that specific of a detail, right? Which, again, speaks to the reality and truth, the historicity of this. Wearing a white robe. Both Luke and John say two angels. So that's why I say shock at the angels. But two men stood by them in shining garments. Mark writes, white robe, right? So the women are alarmed. They're afraid. They bow their faces down to the earth, faces into the ground. Utter amazement overtakes them that the tomb is empty, except for the presence of these two dazzling angels. And I want you to take note that because only one of the angels spoke, both Mark and Matthew only mention him. Okay, And uh, this is how we kind of harmonize the Gospels, right? Uh, the similar thing happens when uh, two demons um, are, are around or multiple demons around, and then one of the Gospel writers would say demons, and then the other one would say that one demon, and, the, and it's the one that spoke okay, to Jesus or to whoever. And so um, same thing with like the, the blind men, right, who are healed. In one account, it's multiple blind men. In, in another account, it's the singular one, the one who's speaking or the one who represents the other. Okay, so this happens sometimes, and we, we put them all together, and uh, there's no contradiction. But in any case, the women see these angels, and they are utterly amazed. They're shocked, bewildered, terrified at what's going on here. Not only is Jesus' body not there, but now suddenly angels appear before them in that tomb. But one of them says to the, to the women, do not be 
amazed. You're not being, isn't that what angels always have to say when humans encounter them? <laughs> right? Don't be, don't be afraid. Okay? They're not just uh, these harmless little babies flying around. On, on, right? um, no, these are supernatural, divine messengers of God. And so they have incredible news. And just as angels were sent by God to deliver the message of the Savior's birth to come, so God sends messengers, angels, to give the message of his resurrection. So after telling them not to be alarmed, not to be afraid, he has to tell them, and he knows what they're here for, right? He knows who they're looking for exactly. Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. And his message to them is the, the title of today's sermon, right? He has risen. He has risen. And note that that's in the, the passive, which means this has been done to Jesus. But what, what does the rest of Scripture tell us? The rest of Scripture does tell us that God the Father raised Jesus, Romans 6, verse 4, Galatians 1, verse 1. The rest of Scripture also tells us that the Holy Spirit raised him, Romans 8, verse 11. And then Jesus says he's the one who has authority to lay down his life and also the authority to take it up again, John 10, verse 18. Right? So just as in the creation of the world in which all three members of the Trinity were involved, so somehow they were all involved in the resurrection, the raising up of Jesus from the dead. And so the angel's message, and by the way, there's probably two of them because of the need for two witnesses in the Old Testament to verify an event, right? Two or three witnesses. And so their message is, look, this is where they buried him, and he's not here. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. And as I was studying once again all the, you know, the accounts from last week and into this week, um, have you ever noticed that in all of these gospel accounts, the actual resurrection of Jesus itself is not described in any of the gospels? Like the way it happened, the moment Jesus like came to life, um, how he left his wrappings, what he looked like or what that looked like, how he left the tomb, and no details at all are offered in any of the gospels about that remarkable, critical moment. What we get instead is the crucial good news that he has risen. He is alive. And it's done in a most powerful yet down-to-earth, plain way. And it's through these women who discover the tomb empty, and then they're told by God's angels that he's risen from the dead. Okay? The angels deliver that message. He's alive. And he tells them, he tells them, go and tell this to the disciples and Peter, right? Probably Peter because he's known as the leader of the group of the 12. And maybe also because Peter's still fresh from that hurt of his own denials of Christ just a couple days ago, right? Still hurting from that. And so he'd want to know right away. Uh, recall Mark 14, 28, because the angel tells him just just as he said, 
okay, just as he told them. So Mark 14, 28, right before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, Jesus told Peter and the disciples that after he is raised, he will go ahead of them to Galilee. And so the angel tells the women to remind Peter and the disciples of that. So the last part of this is found in verse 8. Verse 8. And this is the women stunned, stunned about the risen Lord. Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Obviously, so clearly, this was the last thing they were expecting from their trek to Jesus' tomb that morning. Of all the things that they expected to happen as they're going, this is literally the furthest thing from their, their minds. But they hear it, they see it, they're witness to it, they're told. And so they go running away, overwhelmed, frightened, shaking, shock, excited all at once. And, and notice they don't stick around to, to ask the, the angels more questions, right? Or converse more about, about things. Uh, they've heard enough. They've heard the best news of all. Even though it seems unbelievable, he is risen. Jesus is alive. And this is simultaneous cause for both fear and cause for rejoicing. It says they were trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And just put yourself in their shoes for, for a moment and imagine what you would, you would feel uh, upon experiencing all this. Just incredible, overwhelming stuff. Uh, Hebert says of them being gripped, uh, first of all, it's in the imperfect tense, and so it was, it was a hold over them. Um, they were, they were, this, this feeling of astonishment was holding them. It marks their continuing excitement, causing their bodies to tremble, to shake. As they gained control of themselves, they began to realize the profound reality that had been declared to them. And they felt great joy, according to Matthew 28, 8, and astonishment. And that word is the, where we get the English word ecstasy. It was an utter amazement which swept them quite beyond their normal selves, end quote. And they're even for the moment rendered speechless. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It made me think of those dreams that I would periodically have when I was younger, of being so shocked and frightened of something or someone happening in the dream that I would be unable to speak, even though I really, really wanted to. But eventually, these women, they come to and relay the angel's message to Peter and the disciples. And so some, a few points to consider here. And this, this just is being emphasized uh, with us as we read Mark's account. We read all of them, but Mark in his very powerful and succinct way. Just the authenticity of the resurrection story. Um, once again, mentioning women, mentioning the names of women. Uh, these were the first in God's plan. So in Jesus' time, you should know that women were not regarded as reliable witnesses. Uh, they were not even allowed to be witnesses in Jewish courts because they were considered untrustworthy, considered deceptive. Uh, to quote the, the Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote, uh, quote, 
but let not the testimony of women be admitted. Let it not be allowed on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, end quote, their gender. So, um, and yet we read Mark, we read the other Gospels, and we see after his resurrection, who does Jesus appear to first? Mary Magdalene, right? He sent her to announce his resurrection to the disciples. He sends a woman. Okay, God chose to use women in his, as his initial witnesses to Christ being raised from the dead. And so, once again, this speaks to the, the genuineness, the realness of these accounts. Okay, if they really wanted to just kind of mind their P's and Q's and, and make sure this was verifiable and believable, clearly they would have used men and probably not, you know, these common old uneducated fishermen, right? If they really wanted this to be just like rock solid and convincing and persuading, um, they would not have done it this way. And yet this, this speaks to the, the testimony and genuineness and authenticity of the resurrection story. And so I would like to say that even the, the sudden ending of, of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, it says they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Okay, So I'm not going to get into it right now. We're going to finish the Gospel of Mark next week, but you should know that this is the this is probably, most likely, the official ending of Mark's gospel. And it was supposed to end this way. But some scribes and scholars in the first or second century thought this was a little bit too sudden, second century. And so they add verses 9 through 20. Most of the earlier manuscripts, the authentic manuscripts that were closest to the event, do not have verses 9 through 20. So it's supposed to end here in verse 8. Don't question your Bibles. Don't think that, oh, this must not be true now. We'll explain more next Sunday. But I just want to give you that heads up. And I think we've already seen how reliable and authentic this whole, this whole unlikely story is. As we see the amazing grace of God, the people who he has chosen, men and women, Gentiles, Jews, religious leaders, servants, women, to save their eternal souls, to cause them to believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see his amazing grace, and in that and in his resurrection, in their eyewitness testimony, the amazing almighty power of God, their trembling testimony of God's almighty power to bring back, raise from the dead, Jesus, the Savior. And so... I want to encourage you as we close here. In John 14, verse 19, Jesus promises the disciples this precious thing. And he says, because I live, you will what? You will live also. And that is the most precious, priceless promise that anyone could ever have in all of eternity. And the, the promise that because Jesus lives, we are going to live also. And fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are saved this morning and you are in him, understand that you are a trophy, you are nothing but a trophy of God's grace. It was, 
Um, I remember when, after I got saved and my only Christian friend uh, from childhood, who was the one who was partly responsible for my salvation, because he's the one who gave me that book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity uh, when we were teenagers. And, and I didn't read it until like 10 years later. But um, he was so concerned, so worried about me all through our teenage years as I was going wayward and rebellion and immorality and all sorts of things. And um, when I told him I got saved those years later, um, and what a miracle was, can you believe it? I was all excited and just I I couldn't even find the words. Uh, He was excited with me. He was rejoicing with me. But then he told me that, you know what, because he got saved as a a younger, younger child. He was like 12 years old. He said, it's just as much of a miracle that I got saved at 12 as you at, you know, 29. And so um, I was like, man, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. We're, it was nothing of us, nothing in us that could save ourselves. It was the almighty, amazing grace of God. And so what a promise. And so we have marching orders, don't we? As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Uh, We have this newness of life that we are to walk in. We are no longer in bondage and slavery to our sin, but we're now able and free to walk in obedience to Christ in this newness of life. And so the marching orders are found in Matthew 28, the very last verses, the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and preach the gospel. Go and share the good news with all those around you. And that is our charge this morning. It's our charge every day. And this needs to be a huge part of our our purpose and mission uh, as a church body together that exists for not only the the edification, encouragement, and building up of the saints here, but also to go and scatter and spread the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the hope of newness of life with him. So let's be faithful, dear church body, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for the cross, and thank you for not leaving Jesus in the grave, in that tomb. Thank you that it was emptied. He rose from the dead, and he's alive today, even at this moment. Thank you for the living hope of the resurrection and that message that is absolutely safe and secure. It gives us forgiveness of our sins. It gives us a future security for eternity. And it ensures that as Jesus lives, we will live also. And it gives us the motivation and the impetus to go and tell others of our risen Savior, and to give them that hope as well, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross on our behalf, because he didn't stay dead, but rather rose, shows us that every enemy has been destroyed. Jesus has conquered every single one, Satan, sin, death, and hell. And so we have the best news available, the only message that can save the souls of sinners. So help us, God. Help us to be moved to live more in likeness and love of Christ and to share that love with others as he alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We boldly and thankfully and humbly proclaim him today. And it's in his name we pray.
Amen.